This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. This is podcast episode 223, and joining me remotely from Wisconsin, from Bailey's Harbor, Wisconsin in particular, is Matt Sampson, director of brewing operations for Hacienda Beer Company and Door County Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jamie. Really appreciate it. We've uh, written over the years about Hacienda, well, actually, not, not much about Hacienda, but definitely about Door County. Back, it actually goes back to 2016 when we did a breakout brewer story in the magazine, um, and that breakout brewer story came from a, a chance meeting in 2015 uh, when we threw an ill-fated beer festival in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, thinking that uh, we could pull this off early on in our own tenure. Um, we spent a whole bunch of money to just put together a fantastic beer festival and we lost our shirts on it was the harley davidson museum i mean we it was crazy how much money we lost on on that beer festival um but one of the amazingly cool things that that came out of it is that uh, we were introduced to door county uh, at the time it was just the door county brand and uh, uh then co-founder brewer danny mcmahon had came come down to the festival brought some mixed fermentation beer and i was like wait a second where did this just come from um you know from this tiny brewery up on the you know peninsula in wisconsin um it didn't it didn't make sense to us like how this beer even existed with this kind of polish and uh, and flavor and so of course we followed up on that and have been super impressed over the years uh beers from door county like punk ass cat uh an older ipa uh scored a 97 in the magazine uh, there's a recipe for uh insatiable well no it's a recipe for a new england style ipa on beerandbrewing.com from door county uh so it's that context which got me thinking hey we should kind of check in uh turns out there's been uh you know over the last couple of years some changes in the business matt you've become director of brewing operations you know you've moved out from uh, and your own background is fascinating background as a, a chemist yeah. a phd chemist uh but also a creative design branding photography kind of background in addition to that uh, chemist background um you started off working in the brew house and doing branding work and now you're director of brewing operations and that's a cool kind of uh, career arc. I am looking forward to talking more about that, talking about how you all brew progressive styles of beer as well as mixed fermentation beers and do all those so well. Before we do that, for nearly 30 years, GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. GD stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. GD also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in-house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real-world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System Design Experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, support for this episode comes from BSG and The Malt House by RAR. The Malt House is your online source for cool and exclusive RAR malting company gear that you can't get anywhere else. T-shirts, hoodies, hats, socks, glassware, and even gear for your pets. Rep the malt you brew with and look sharp doing it. 
take the tradition home at themalthouse.com. That's the malt H-A-U-S dot com. So Matt, we normally start the podcast off a little bit on you. I'm curious. Uh, talk to me about this arc that took you from PhD chemist working in uh, research and, and uh, highly technical fields to then making a career switch, jumping into brewing uh, on two sides of that, both in the cellar and brew house, and then also on that kind of marketing branding side. Yeah, I guess I'll take it back. Went to undergrad uh, for chemistry at University of Illinois in Champaign down there, and then headed out to San Diego to pursue my PhD in chemistry. I went to the University of California, San Diego, up in La Jolla there. A couple of my lab mates were home brewers. Um, spent I spent a little bit of time kind of shadowing them and kind of dove into home brewing myself while I was uh, getting my PhD. Home brewing was never kind of a thing. Not not a, right. Not a bad place to be if you're uh, you know interested in craft yeah, yeah. beer and uh, pursuing a PhD. Yeah, but like home brewing wasn't really ever something that stuck fully. Like my homebrew was not top quality, especially. When, we, when I lived in San Diego and we had all these great craft breweries around. So yeah, I spent my time on the weekends kind of exploring the craft brewing scene out there. I was really into photography at the time out there and still, uh, still am. But yeah, I uh, moved back to Illinois after getting my PhD. Uh, my family still lived there. My girlfriend at the time, now wife, she was, she was from that area too. So we moved back. I Worked at Argonne National Lab uh, in the suburbs of Chicago out there. Yeah, I was kind of just trying to get some connection to the craft brewing scene in Chicago. I was kind of over lab science. I was, you know, involved in, <laughs> you know, pretty technical benchtop lab day to day. And I was kind of over it. I, I was trying just to find any way to break into a craft beer related thing. And it was actually my photography that kind of, I connected very briefly with uh, good beer hunting in Chicago. I actually wrote a couple stories for their blog online website and did a story on second shift and actually scratch brewing. Uh, I got to go spend the day at scratch foraging a beer and went through the whole brewing process with them. Uh, That was, that was really beautiful. Beautiful place. Yeah. Yeah. That really just changed my whole perspective on what beer could be and like really influences what, what we do at Hacienda, at least on the mixed culture side now. But yeah, then my girlfriend, um, her family had always vacationed up in Door County throughout her whole life. Her parents were retiring up here. She had an online business with her um, with her mom at the time. We, we decided to make the jump in open a brick and mortar shop for her online business. That's what brought us to Door County. Kind of just quit the lab. And eventually I was getting into drone aerial photography up here. Danny, Danny McMahon reached out to me randomly to actually use my, some of my photographs, my drone photographs on labels for this new, new uh, beer brand they were starting called Hacienda. And yeah, I came into the brewery uh, one day. They kind of pitched me on the whole Hacienda concept, talked about how they were starting this new creative brand kind of as a creative outlook for Danny and Kyle Gregorish. And they kind of hinted at the fact that they didn't really have somebody to lead the Hacienda brand or kind of they wanted a new voice for it rather than what they were doing at Door County Brewing. 
So I went home after that meeting and kind of was like, wow, I feel like I could offer them at least a little bit with my photography skills. So I felt like I could kind of lead that brand, then use my scientific side to help on quality and slowly work my way into the brewery. And so I just wrote him an email and kind of pitched a brand manager job slash quality control. Kind of made up, I kind of made up my own beer, uh, just job description for them. And they, Matt, you're going to root, you're going to ruin everybody in the industry when they think, oh, I could have that be one job. QC manager and brand manager. Can I get that into one person? Yeah. It doesn't exist outside (laughs) of you. I think that's a, that's a, a singular position, but yeah. Yeah, but luckily, luckily they were like, yeah, actually that's that's something we think we need. I didn't really know what it was going to turn into and definitely right at right at the start, it was mostly focused on starting the Hacienda brand on the right foot, kind of making sure the photography, the artwork and just all this the introduction to that brand was was what it was supposed to be. And then yeah, they they had a little lab space at the brewery we're in now, we actually brew in a different facility than, than where Door County Brewing was started. That facility is now our, our barrel room uh, for the mixed culture uh, beers. But I was able to build out a very small, not expensive lab uh, to help with quality here. And then slowly started working my way in every area of the brewing side from keg washing to running the canning line to one of the other tasks Danny kind of gave me right away was growing the mixed culture program. They had about six oak barrels at that time and grew it to about 75 um, where it is today. Uh, we got three fooders from fooder crafters that we really grew out that little little brewing space that their old old production brewery was in. It's been it's been a wild ride. And so then Hacienda took. Yeah, Hacienda took off as this brand that is focusing on mixed culture beers and also focuses on kind of progressive styles, hazy IPA, New England style For IPA, sure. um, you know, and those other types of beers. And you've been able to kind of pull both of those together. And then you you all even opened up a separate Hacienda tap room down in Milwaukee to kind of serve the brand. Yeah, it was kind of uh, one of the one of the ways we one of the reasons we we started this Hacienda kind of project to begin with was we felt it had a reach greater than just Door County. Door County Brewing was very tied to this this peninsula with very approachable beers. When when they were at their old uh, production space, they, Danny, Danny was really spearheading like a lot of more experimental new school IPAs at the time before a lot of Wisconsin even knew what like New England IPA was. And then, yeah, like doing doing mix very small mixed culture projects. So he was very progressive in that in that sense. But I can imagine the core audience of summer tourists in that peninsula in Door County that may not be exactly the beer that they were looking for in that scope. No, it makes sense to to kind of split those things up and and keep that that passion going, but also find find the customers that you want for uh, the beer that you want to make. Also, um, plus, I mean, Milwaukee needed a they needed a cool, hip, modern, progressive. Yeah, and at, at the time when we decided Milwaukee, it was really, really booming. Um, now it's it's very, I would say, a very progressive beer city. Um, it's really grown in the last few years. But yeah, we're we're really happy to be kind of put a put a flag in Milwaukee. Um, it was always 
one of our favorite places to partner with beer bars down there and bring our Door County small batch beers down there um, to showcase. So it really made sense to kind of grow, grow that with an actual physical location. For sure, for sure. Well, let's talk about some of the beers. And uh, then, of course, now, you know, you went from QC and, and brand manager to director of brewing operations and uh, doing a whole lot more and now overseeing a lot of that as the entire business has morphed from, uh, you know, from those early days when we uh, first started paying attention to it. I want to talk about some of the, the the beers, probably the Hacienda beers in particular, because uh, I think those are probably of most interest to the folks listening to this podcast here. Uh, before we do that, is your brewery struggling to source or afford berry ingredients? Historic heat waves devastated U.S. berry crops, causing supply to dwindle and prices to skyrocket. That's why brewers are switching over to Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends, which mimic straight concentrates, but at a better price point and with more reliable supply. Is it any surprise that Old Orchard's best sellers are raspberry and blackberry flavors? Reclaim your margins. Order your craft concentrates at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation is the first real-time comprehensive fermentation monitoring solution. It works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real-time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Brew Monitor provides detailed insight into your fermentations that helps improve beer consistency, reduce tank time, and increase overall efficiency, saving your brewery time and money. Get started for 30 days risk-free visit precisionfermentation.com slash brewing. So Matt, talk to me about the core beers of, of Hacienda. You know, are there kind of stylistic buckets that Hacienda focuses on? And, uh, you know, of those, um, talk to me about some of the, the approaches that you find more interesting um, that may be of interest to our brewers listening right now. Definitely focus on IPA and hoppy beer. We probably make... Uh... 60% IP, some type of a hoppy beer, but we do a ton of mixed culture beer, a ton. Uh, we, we put an emphasis on mixed culture beer, uh, and now we're, we're doing spontaneous fermentation with a cool ship. Uh, that's probably 10% of our production. Um, really? We, yeah, we do a decent amount of that. Um, that's another reason why we, we try to open that Milwaukee tap room is really it's a lot easier to sell that beer uh, when you can talk directly to the consumer um, about those styles. Um, we do do 15 to 20% of lager brewing. That's really grown in the last year, year and a half, I would say. And then we do all sorts of other styles to fill out the rest of that. Um, st- decent amount of stouts. Um, I would say more, more on the line of drinkable pastry inspired stouts i don't they're not like what what pastry stout has become these days i wouldn't say but um yeah a ton of other uh whatever kind of creative thing our brewers uh think of sure sure let's talk about mixed fermentation brewing because uh you know as you mentioned earlier you know, you took that program from six barrels to 70 some odd barrels and, uh, you know, and helped kind of grow and, and baby it along, you know, as you all set out to create a, a mark for that mixed fermentation program, talk to me about how, uh, you know, what the Genesis was, where it came from and how you all started to define what kind of mixed fermentation beers you, you wanted to be known for and how you then went about putting a, a kind of 
Hacienda stamp on that. Sure. I know Danny was very inspired by Belgian beer. Um, Door County Brewing as a whole was kind of started as a Belgian-focused brand, uh, kind of tying to the uh, Belgian heritage of of Door County. Uh, I personally uh, loved sour beer and Saison from Belgium as well. so when, when we kind of set out, Danny and I kind of spearheaded kind of growing that, that project, we, we knew we wanted very strong Britannomyces character, uh, light acidity, uh, but definitely Brett forward first and foremost and, and more tropical Brett characteristics than kind of your barnyardy or super funky uh, Brett character. Um, and from the... from And I remember... I remember that as a kind of a key feature that when we tasted in 2015, that mixed fermentation beer, the acidity was very low. Um, You know, it was tart maybe, you know, but even then very, very light. And yet it was spritzy with this nice Brett definition to it that didn't feel heavy handed. Um, You know, and there was even a nice like hop component to it that seemed very, very complimentary in this. And I mean, it was uh, just beautifully balanced in all these multiple directions, you know, not, uh, you know, in a a kind of a counterpoint because I think, you know, initial mixed fermentation stuff in America in the early 20 aughts or uh, 20 aughts and 20 teens grew very acid forward quickly. Um, And you all definitely were not following that direction. Yeah, no, that was definitely the inspiration was more balanced, uh, drinkable beer that had complex yeast and fermentation profiles. Uh, we definitely experienced in, in that growth of that mixed culture program, our own little acidity kind of wave where we, we, we tried to pitch um, a variety of things, I would say, when we started that program. Um, everything had bread in it. Most, most of it was, uh, almost entirely oak fermented either in barrels or the, or the fooders. We still don't do a ton of, um, kind of stainless steel primary fermentation for that, those beers. Um, we haven't seen any detrimental characteristics for just fermenting directly in oak and, and aging on, on that yeast. Sure. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we pitched uh, bacteria in some of the barrels too, um, which in hindsight, I probably want to do again if I was um, going to start that program. But we, we wanted some acidic beer to blend with. Um, because of that, we, we didn't hop things too heavily when we were trying to grow that, that program. So acidity definitely, it got, our, our, our stock got more acidic, I would say, than we were hoping. Um, but now we've kind of tamed that back and dialed it in a lot more just with hopping rates and um, primarying with only Brett or um, we kind of have a high uh, house saison blend that we use of yeast. And we're, we're almost always just using those two things and almost never pitching uh, bacteria or a mixed culture that has bacteria in it anymore. Um, just really? because we're reusing a lot of the oak and those fooders have those cultures established and we get enough acidity mm. from that, those already established cultures. 
Yeah, I remember the stories early on of all of the carboys with different cultures running, uh, you know, kind of simultaneously. I know, you know, and it's interesting to like looking at that phase of brewing now. Um, and it's similar when I talk to a lot of brewers, like we were doing a lot of experimentation in those things and then we figured out what worked (laughs) and so you know watching this kind of evolution of process like winnowing down you know know, almost as this like you know natural selective you know kind of uh process over the last 10 years has been really interesting to see and that you all it sounds like went through the same kind of process trying a lot of different things and then finding the smaller subset of things that really works for you. And so you mentioned Brett primary fermentation. Do you, do you do a fair amount of Brett primary fermentation? Yeah. You know, um, yeah, we, we, we have a few, maybe two or three Brett strains that we keep in house. Um, they're all Brett Brooks, but I think Brett Brooks sometimes is considered very barnyardy and funky. Uh, these, all these strains are very tropical fruit forward. Uh, more pineapple-y, um, with kind of even like a sweet, tarty, not too acidic character. How did you? How did you get? Um, you know, find these specific Brett strains, Bruck strains that produce that kind of flavor. Um, are they commercially available, or yeah. are they just things that you you guys have been able to isolate? No. So the Brett strains are all commercially available, and they're just part of that growth where we kind of tried a bunch of things um, and settled on a few that we really like the profiles of. Our, our Saison blend that I, I also talked about that we, we do most primary fermentation with is also commercially available. It's a, it's a blend. Um, and uh, we also use a, a, a different SAC blend, Saccharomyces blend uh, that I did harvest uh, wild from Door County. The first summer I, I, I worked here, I went around the, the county and swabbed fruits and all sorts of flowers <laughs> and, and sorts of things. Um, and yeah, I, I sent a bunch of those um, mixed cultures to Jeff down at Bootleg Biology. Um, he actually isolated. Right, I, Jeff Mello. Yeah, he, he isolated a bunch of them um, and sent them back to us. And we uh, kind of picked a, only two that we really use now um, and we use them usually together in a blend, uh, in certain beers. But you were also, you've also gone down the, the cool ship rabbit hole and are working on spontaneous beer now. Yep. Um, yeah, that was something that we always wanted to do. I think what they wanted to do from starting door County brewing, it's we're in such a unique, uh, kind of environment up here on a peninsula between green Bay and, and Lake Michigan. Um, so it's, it just makes sense to, if we're going to do mixed culture beer, uh, I think to do something spontaneous that really represents the area, um, that, that we live in. Um, so yeah, we started brewing, uh, cool ship beer four. it'll be four years ago in, in fall in this, this coming fall. Um, so we, we released a blend of two year old, um, cool ship beer last year. That was our first 100% spontaneously fermented beer. Uh, that was absolute killer beer uh, in, in both tap rooms. Uh, but yeah, we 
our system, our, our brew house up here is just a single infusion uh, brew house. So we don't, we don't do any kind of turbid mashing. Um, we don't keep that process very traditional. Um, we do use a decent amount of raw wheat, uh, malted wheat, uh, and Pilsner malt uh, in that grain bill, but we don't, we don't claim to do um, kind of very traditional beer that way. Uh, we're just sure, but are, I mean, are you using any other tricks? You know, obviously, if you yeah, uh, mashing hot to you know yeah. you know leave it dextrous and just you know, um, what other strategies do you use to kind of make it not turbid mash, but uh, you know, make it yeah, the, uh, longer to ferment for those things to you know to do their work. Yeah, the only th- tricks we really use are um, just using a, a high high content of raw wheat. Um, and then mashing. When you mashing. say high, what, what is that? Like uh, 50-50 or? Not, not quite, maybe 40%. Um, okay. But, uh, and mash, mashing hot, um, as hot as, you know, they, we, we haven't found, thin, we, we keep bumping it up, I would say, and we haven't um, hmm. really gotten to a point where we, we found detrimental effects to that. Um but those are the real only. We don't even use aged hops very much. We we use um, it's going to mimic you know that that pr- classic profile. Um, we, we use a decent amount of local hops um, directly in our cool ship to kind of give it a different character of our own um, that we really liked um, over the last couple of years in our in our cool ship program. So we'll actually steep uh, local whole cone hops directly in the cool ship overnight with the beer. Um, those are, those have been our that's favorite. A, that's interesting. It's yeah. That's not a, not an untraditional method, maybe not as much with Lambic brewers, but uh, you know, certainly uh, in other areas of Europe that used cool ships, like, you know, hop addition to the cool ship is pretty, pretty normal when you do that. I mean, obviously it's harder to calculate IBU contribution and something like that because, you know, the, the time and temperature contact and, you know, the volume of, I, I, you know, that's just weird, but uh, do you have any kind of rules of thumb about how much acidity or how much, uh, sorry, how much bitterness is too much and then inhibits the kind of growth of, of culture and wild yeasts? We have not, uh, we, it's very, that whole process to us is not very, uh, I would say <laughs> dialed in just, it's, we fill sure. how big's your cool ship and how much hops go in there yeah it's it's a it's a 14 barrel about 14 barrel cool ship our, our brew house is 15 barrels um we usually use just about 11 pounds of whole cone hops um i would say at a maximum um in the cool ship usually a little bit less than that um those those beers we don't really hop uh hop for the cool ship very very much um and i would say that's about half of what we've done so far the other half is um more traditional um hot side hopping um without without aged hops so um but yeah is there something to the wisconsin hops that provide a, a flavor contribution that you enjoy outside of just the hey it tastes like wisconsin yeah we've used both um just local cascade and local comet in the cool ship um i really enjoy the the local comet character uh it it has this tropical fruit character i 
I think in citrus note, that's, that's really pleasant. Um, I really hadn't used Comet before using the local, uh, the local stuff. Um, and I've been, yeah, it's been super pleasing. Um, we did, we did a, a lot of wet, hot, wet hopped lager, uh, this past season with that, uh, Comet as well. That was super cool to use. I love tasting these variations and, you know, like Michigan Cascades just across the the lake from you all, same kind of thing, have their own flavor that's very different from Pacific Northwest Cascades. And I mean, how even Cascades from Washington to Oregon, you know, are, are a bit different. But I mean, I've loved that kind of berry note that comes out of those Michigan Cascades. And it's yep. fascinating to see that, you know, these, the impact of growing area and, and environment can have that much flavor and aroma impact just on the yeah. same exact hop plant. Yeah, we use a decent amount of Michigan hops as well. Um, Michigan Chinook is the big one that a lot of people just rave about because of its pineapple character. And yeah, we have right. some core IPAs that, that use Michigan Chinook, um, and hazy IPA. So then let's, let's get back to that subject of, uh, of, you know, spontaneous beer. So you're, you're using a, you know, slightly modified standard infusion mash process. Sometimes you're, you're uh, cool ship hopping. Sometimes you're not doing that. Um, you're not using aged hops, you know, how, how talk to me about developing that kind of funky character that people expect out of, you know, cool shipped and spontaneous beer. I know, you know, from our standpoint, in a lot of ways, those aged hops tend to provide some of the flavor compounds that then get worked on by Brett and other, you know, other things through that, that long fermentation process with those. Um, how do you, how do you provide that kind of expectation of, of funkiness if, uh, you know, if you're not using some of these things? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we actually are trying to, um, chase, chase those characteristics. Hmm. Um, I think we're just trying to showcase local microflora. Um, and I would, we use those local hops, um, and other, other, those other batches, uh, we will use more fruit forward hops, um, just because we like, I personally like the profile, more fruity profile, um, less. I, I do love, you know, those aged hop characteristics in, in those beers as well. Um, but I also think there's something unique about um, doing it a different way, doing it um, not, not chasing kind of that flavor profile. And yeah, we're very clear when we describe those beers, what, what, you know the consumer should expect um and the the beers we put out so far do you know don't have a very pronounced aged top character or that funky character that is associated with them that's interesting and it's uh i mean i can appreciate that point of view that um it's not trying to be this other thing or trying to be uh you know, an equivalent of that. This is, and it also sounds like, uh, you know, I keep hearing you use the same language of tropical fruit, uh, you know, across all of the different kinds of beers that you make. And it seems like it's an interesting approach to say, hey, whether we're making a mixed fermentation, uh, you know, wood fermented farmhouse style beer, whether we're making a spontaneous beer, whether we're making a uh, hazy IPA, 
these are the kinds of flavor currents that define our brand because this is what we like. You know, that's, uh, I think that's a valid artistic and uh, aesthetic approach. Yeah, yeah. And we definitely get funky characteristics from, you know, that wild microflora. It's just not the same aged hop derived um, characteristic that, you know, most people are used to in that style. Sure, sure. No, I mean, we get the same kind of funky characteristic out of hazy IPAs used Southern Hemisphere hops because some of those, there are some of the same flavor compounds that stretch there. You know, tropical fruit has, you know, funky phenolic character. And, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of ways, you know, all of these things are more complex. And so you're right, you know, it's not just aged hops funk character that, that gives it, if you wanted to make a beer that tasted just like Belgian Lambic, then yeah, you probably need to do that. But there's no rule that says you have to make it taste like that. Well, let's, uh, I want to dig in a little bit more and talk about process and using these yeasts before we do that from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brew House to the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses. SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head over to ssbrewtech.com. Also, are you involved in your local homebrew club? Want to receive even more benefits? Sign up today for Five Star Chemicals Homebrew Club program. It's free and you could have the chance to test out new products before they hit the market, receive exclusive swag, and enjoy discounts on brewing cleaners and sanitizers. Head on over to their website to sign up. You won't want to miss it. So you go through this mash process, you know, and maybe we should kind of just focus on mixed culture, you know, kind of pitched culture beers here. Um, talk to me about how you then, uh, or, you know, is there anything special in that recipe itself that allows those cultures to shine? And then, you know, as you go then through the fermentation process, um, you know, what what have you found to help you produce the kind of expressive fruit forward flavors in those beers that you all really love? Yeah, so um, just in regular mixed culture beer, um, we definitely like to use a lot of uh, high protein, grain, um, oats, wheat, spelt, um, almost all rye. Almost all of our recipes have probably two, two of those um, in addition to Pilsner malt, um, just something to give yeast and bacteria something to chew on for a, sure. for a while. Um, what kind of rough percentage do you, do you find yourself using with those? Yeah. For the regular mixed culture beer, it's probably around 20, 25%, uh, only a combination of, of those, those other grains. So not nothing, nothing crazy. Um, but it, yeah, I, I, I really like spelt particularly, um, in those beers, rye just, I think pairs, pairs really well with, with mixed culture Saison. Um, what, in what way? Just from the, a sensory perspective, just the spice, what do you get subtle from? spiciness, um, more so that I would say spelt, spelt and rye are more in our beers than, um, like oats. Uh, but, um, yeah, just, just the subtle spiciness and, and maybe, maybe it's doing something with our specific breath strains or, or bacteria strains um, that that creates some some sort of uh, profile that w- that we prefer um, I don't know that for sure but uh, we really like the beers to have those those grains in them yeah, so you so you have a you know, significant component of you know some of these other high protein grains in there 
obviously that's you know gonna sit there and let the the you know culture work on it for a longer amount of time um you know are there specific hops that you use in those mixed culture beers that uh that help accentuate some of the fruitier flavors that uh, seem to be your your typical goal yeah we um we like to use a lot of whirlpool hopping with with um you know the hot hot hops that are on the market some of our favorite hops for hazy ipa make their way into those beers there's something really, even into your mixed culture yeah beers. there's something really cool about um how those hops transform in fermentation with with Britannomyces, i think particularly um we just did a strata uh whirlpool hopped um food or beer that just transformed into this really cool um character uh tropical fruit character um uh, with with those Britannomyces uh strains um so we, we've done that with a bunch of different hops um new zealand hops or our citra mosaic simcoe um some of our favorites from from the pacific west what does the hop load look like in the whirlpool and you know roughly and maybe like pounds per barrel to to get some sort of effect because you're not trying to overwhelm the beer but you also don't want those to disappear yeah we're we're usually at um slightly under a pound per barrel um but but pretty close to a pound per barrel um just using uh traditional t90s um and that's usually the only hop addition um if if we're doing that that sort of sort of thing for a beer um, and then is there a temperature that you, you'll find you whirlpool at, or are you, uh, cooling it down at all? Or are you just cutting and, and whirlpooling for, for those beers? We don't, we don't really mess with the temperature. We, we, we're cutting and, and whirlpooling pretty fast. Uh, for our hazy IPAs, we, we do, uh, cool the, the whirlpool down, um, usually just below like 190, um, somewhere between usually settle somewhere between 180 and 190 um but we can i don't know if you want to dive into that that whole topic right now or if we want to stay on this sure yeah no i mean let's talk about that i mean i love whirlpooling and i've I've been we've been talking a lot about it because you know of course cool pooling is all the rage but figuring out (laughs) how to you know drop drop temperatures um there's a whole variety of ways to do it and just talking to somebody and they were telling me about how they just blow cool air over the top of their kettle and oh uh, really drop it down like, yeah okay 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 that's how you do that um <laughs> not everybody can do that kind of thing um what you know what is that what how do you all do that yeah so for our hazy ipas we um we run uh whirlpool through our heat exchanger just just to get it below 190 we don't want to go super super low with it we we did Right when we started cold whirlpooling, experimenting with that, we did go pretty low. Like we were, we were trying like 160. Um, we didn't notice much difference, at least in sensory, between like right below 190 and going going much mm. cooler than that. So, just from uh, keeping things clean standpoint, I, I feel a lot right. comfortable at 180 to 190 than down lower than that. Um, that thought of, and, and, you know, as we're talking about that now, I'm thinking about spontaneous brewing. You, I bet you have a problem that is, uh, less common for other spontaneous brewers and that is temperatures that are too cold 
to spontaneously ferment in, or at least having to manage the temperature so it doesn't get as cold inside as you're cooling as it might be outside. Um, you can have pretty frigid air temperatures that are um, significantly below freezing yeah. where you are. Um, that would be way too cold for um, for any kind of real spontaneous fermentation. How do you all manage that kind of temperature control? Yeah, so we, we just plant it accordingly. We we only really uh, produce those beers in, in spring and, and late fall uh, just to – we target uh, – between 35 and I would say 45 degrees overnight temperature. Um, we have a little, uh, cabin next to our brew, uh, brew house, um, in our beer garden, actually, that it's a really perfect spot for a cool ship. Um, those old, old woodworking building, um, really old, like wood beams, um, in, in that building. And we just open up the windows. Um, we have, five or six windows that we can kind of vary. Do we open all of them depending on the temperature? Do we open only two? Um, we kind of control the, the airflow that way, um, depending on how cold or how hot it is at night. That makes sense. I got distracted on temperature stuff, but let's talk about, you know, fermentation with your, uh, your mixed culture, you know, pitched mixed culture beers. Um, you know, as those move through fermentation, uh, you know, you, again, you've got a, if you're using a commercial culture, you have a rough idea of, of where those, you know, are, um, do you manipulate temperature in any way through those fermentations to, um, to get them to express in a specific way, or you just kind of let them roll? Yeah. For all of the mixed culture beers, for the most part, um, unless we ferment in stainless, which we rarely do, um, we just let it, let it roll. We let it free rise and yeah. We really like that profile. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we do do occasional stainless primaries and we'll control those temperatures. Um, but we really have liked the profile of, of all those oak direct fermentations. Sure, sure. Let's talk a little bit about fruit additions then. You know, the, obviously that's a big piece of this in, in terms of, uh, especially in that kind of mixed fermentation beer space of creating interest for consumers, creating, uh, you know, beers that also feel, you know, comfortable and familiar for them, even if they have, you know, some element of them that are, you know, funky or, or you know, slightly tart or whatnot. Um you know, fruit and other kind of spice and ingredient additions are a big piece of that. Where, where do you all um, tend to land? You know, you if if you are moving in that direction and trying to achieve that tropical fruitiness, as we've already talked about, you also don't want to crush some of that natural fermentation, uh, you know, flavor and some of what the culture itself is bringing. How do you, uh, you know, how do you make aesthetic decisions about fruits to add to those, and then how do you go about adding some of those fruits? Yeah, so um, for fruiting, we I typically just try to source um, as much as I can find local. We're we're pretty lucky in Door County. It's uh, like Montmorency cherries are it's, it's the capital of of right. the country for that that sort of thing. So we do use some cherries every season. We do a cherry beer, and we just kind of see. I have a couple. Uh, few different farms up here or growers up here that um i've developed relationships with and i kind of know what they grow every year and, and we'll have conversations on what 
timing what what timing with those things look like and and how the crops doing that year and what kind of quantities they have um so we use strawberries and peaches um cherries for the most part um so some a few others but those are those are the kinds of the, the local local uh fruit or what i like to focus on um and I, we kind of try to blend uh, beer according to what, what fruit we find or what fruit is available. Um, so we'll go through our barrel stock and, and try to find something that would pair really well with that rather than kind of tasting a, tasting a bunch of beers and having a blend and thinking, you know, a fruit would, would go well with that. It's usually the other way around in our, in our case. How much does uh, that fruit, you know, because fruit harvests happen in very specific times of the year. Um, and of course, to have mixed fermentation beer, you know, you can finish in a few months or you can finish in two years. Um, you know, there's some range there, but depending on how things work in your fermentation, you want to have beer ready at, at a similar time that fruit's going to come in because the fruit will never wait. You know, how does that impact, you know, your brewery brewing planning um, so that you make sure you have, you know, beer that's ready at the right time with the right kind of, you know, uh, it's in the right place in the process to then add fruit with. Yeah, that was, that was all uh, kind of a part of this growth on that. That's the mixed culture side. We're always trying to have enough barrel stock to, especially in the summer, just to, so that we have a lot to choose from, a lot of kind of different different paints to paint with. But yeah, yeah, we we tend to just uh, really amp up production. We're, we brew more in the winter um, or the year before, just so we just so we have enough stock ready for the that fruit. How long does your typical fermentation take in a fooder or in a, a wood barrel where you're doing fermentation in the barrel? Yeah, so it depends on um, most of our fooder beers. We we try to turn around a little bit quicker. Uh, and those, I would say, are more kind of classic Saison inspired um, in a way. Although we do do these hop profiles and techniques that um, definitely move it away from that, but, um, those aren't always for fruit. Um, those are, I would say three, three to four months, uh, maybe six months for those types of beers. Um, that's definitely the, the shortest turnaround, um, sure. that we do over there. Um, for, for all the barrel fermented beers, um, I would say six to 18 months is kind of the sweet spot. Um, we were doing a lot, some like two to two and a half years right after we grew that program up to like 70 plus barrels. And um, I definitely don't, the acidity can get out of line it, the longer you, you let it age. Um, and I think that was part of the problem with our, our acidity as well, um, getting out of hand. Um, so we, we don't want to let it age more than I would say 18 months. Um, and then the spontaneous beer is another story. Um, we kind of get those old, that, that really mature profile using that, those spontaneous beers. Um, and we're definitely moving our program into 
I would say more focused on spontaneous beer, um, especially on the fruit side, kind of pairing those fruits with um, the the spontaneous the local fruits with the local locally fermented or naturally fermented beers. We only have a few blending tanks over in that that barrel room, so once we once we put fruit in one of those blending tanks, we gotta um, kind of let it let it ferment out and re ferment So it's it's nice to do that with the this focus on the spontaneous beers for for those kind of projects. Using fruit from local growers, you know, creates a whole another line of of uh, manual work that you typically need to do, um, from you know processing those things, you know, to uh, uh, you know potentially freezing, um, you know, how what, then you know or cutting in some cases, especially if you're talking about a fruit that's as large as as a peach, um, you know, peeling or, or removing skin, all of these you know, pitting sometimes, you know, talk to me about how with some of those, you know, three core local fruits, you all then process and add in order to, you know, get a nice expression out of the beer, but also say limit oxygen intake and, and oxidation and some of the more negative things that can come from when you're adding things into beer. Yeah. Um, yeah, all the fruit is hand, I mean, hand processed and we, we always use it, um, fresh. Uh, we have not, we haven't tried freezing anything. Hmm. We don't, we don't have a means to freeze, uh, 500 pounds of fruit, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, it's all, it's all processed fresh. Sometimes for cherries, we, we simply just throw that in a tank, purge the tank. Um, we really like kind of to allow the cherries to sit in a, a purged carbon dioxide environment. Uh, it's done done in the wine industry a lot. Is sure, like, a little carbonic maceration. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So that's what we do almost now entirely for cherries. Um, we'll let the cherries start at least start fermenting. Um, we don't always let it go completely uh, carbonic that that whole process but we'll at least let it start fermenting and then uh rack beer onto the those cherries um, when you say start like how many days would you let that roll probably at least a month um yeah um we i think we've we've done one to two months usually um and we we really like the results with that um what uh, from a sensory perspective what was that kind of cherry uh I think it fermentation. It, I just like that it. I think it kind of speeds up the time that you you need to let the beer sit on cherries. Cherries is something that I think you could let beer sit on for a year and it would almost almost get better. Uh, but allowing the the cherries to ferment uh, before exposure to the beer kind of breaks some of the skin a little bit. Uh, just kind of speeds up that whole process. We still let it sit on the beer for a couple of months at least, sometimes hmm. four or five months. Um, but I think if we didn't do that, we would want to let the cherries sit on there for six to eight months. Um, I, I think you just keep getting more depth of cherry flavor. Um, we don't we don't pit the cherries or anything. I think uh, hmm. you get a lot of nuanced kind of uh, almondy, cinnamony kind of characteristics. Uh, from from those pits that are really pleasant in those beers, uh, something like 
peaches, you know, we, we, we have hand processed those and, and pitted those and sliced them by hand. Um, we just did a beer where we kind of did what we did with cherries. We didn't go through like a carbonic, uh, maceration, but we just threw them in a tank. We left the pits in, um, and yeah, just racked the beer on there and we let them sit for, I think seven months. And that was the best. It's not released yet. It's still in conditioning and bottles, but that's the most depth of peach flavor we've got in a, in a mixed culture beer so far. That's, that's an ingredient that's really hard to just extract, um, true, true peach flavor. Um, but I think the pit pits really, really contributed some, some great, uh, depth of flavor. People, people worry about the pits and peaches particularly just, uh, but I, I've heard of other brewers, um, doing that without any issues. Um, I don't think you extract anything that would, would harm anybody, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what we've been uh, leaning towards recently is kind of more whole fruit, not touching it much and kind of longer, uh, exposure and refermentation time with the beer. That's what I've, I've really enjoyed, uh, recently. That's a large investment in terms of, uh, you know, leaving things in contact for that amount of time in, you know, a stainless, uh, blending tank of some sort. Um, you know, you have to be committed to let it sit for that amount of time. Um, and it becomes an expensive beer to create then because tank time is money. Yeah. We, we only do a couple of year, um, and we try to plan them for plan out so that those are kind of the last beers of the kind of season that we make. And we let them sit until around this time of year. Um, try to try to package a bunch of beer before that to kind of have stock to release throughout the year. Well, that's interesting because the business is a little bit more seasonal, you know, because you sell so much more beer in the summertime than in the winter, you can kind of take advantage of some of the excess capacity over, over that, uh, winter time. Yeah. And it's just, um, we always let our bottles, um, and kegs naturally, uh, referment, uh, over, six to 12 months usually um usually uh because of thp uh creeps creeps up yeah. and uh we just got to let that scrub out uh, that's been a we've done a lot we've i think we've figured out a lot of things to kind of counteract that um but but it still needs three to six months i would say and in, in the package to really get to a place where you feel comfortable releasing it he's just ra- waved the red flag in front of the bull so talk to me about your thp reduction strategies it's certainly uh it's it's not it's gonna definitely be anything ground changing <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean definitely right when we started ramping up everything um it was at that place in the industry where all of a sudden people were it seemed like people had just discovered thp um but it was probably just because of the mass increase in that, that kind of beer production. Uh, and yeah, we had really, really bad problems with it. Uh, like I said, we would have to let bottles condition six to 12 months um, to kind of scrub that out. And it, it would always scrub out. Uh, the Britannomyces would always convert it. Uh, luckily, and we would never release beer 
that had that in in it or in it on a sensory level. The things that we've we've found recently to really counteract that, we switched to bottle conditioning with a C- CBC one, which is a, a bottle conditioning yeast. We were we were trying to bottle condition with Brettanomyces for a long time, and I think that was just taking a lot longer. Um, that bottle conditioning yeast kind of just quicker acting, kind of scrubs the oxygen out of the bottle. I think quicker than Brettanomyces was. Um, and we're just pitching a lot more um, yeast than we were at bottle conditioning and just being way more mindful of keeping everything as oxygen-free as possible. Um, we have a very elementary bottle, bottling setup for that, that side of the business, uh, which, which you probably a lot of people have seen, just the gravity fill head. Um, which, which is impossible to keep oxygen free, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, those two, just pitching a lot of yeast and, um, switching that yeast strain up for bottle conditioning has really, really made an impact. Makes sense. Makes sense. Is there any other, uh, interesting piece of your mixed fermentation process that, uh, you know, was kind of an aha moment for you all where you, you, you know, discovered something that, uh, you know, improved the overall process. Oh man. I, I don't know if it's a ha- aha moment, but, um, I've found that I, I think any mixed culture beer should be dry hopped. Even if it's like tiny, tiny bit, it just does something to the head retention and just really adds, uh, an extra layer to the beer. Even if it's like a, just a size, like tiny, tiny dry hop, I think really improves, improves those beers. Interesting, interesting. Just from a kind of textural and functional standpoint, not not even flavor. Yeah, definitely. Huh. Well, Matt, as we zoom out, what uh, you know, obviously the last couple of years have have put Door County and, and Hacienda, you know, through some changes. Every brewing and business has gone through changes over the last couple of years, even, you know, whether you wanted to or not, people have taken stock, employees are changing, you know, people move around, people have decided to leave the industry sometimes, you know, consumers change the way they interact with your brand and the way that they consume beer. You know, it's, it's been a whole period of, of people trying to, to figure things out and, and we're not through it yet. Obviously we're still seeing, you know, we're, we're on the tail end of, or I guess we're at the end of this plateau of Omicron, thank God, where it seems like uh, the new caseloads are going down and uh, hopefully we can get through this period of people just being sick and not being able to work or go out. You know, even that, even if the death rates are, uh, you know, as a percentage of, of, you know, people being sick have declined because this is a less deadly variant and plus more people are vaccinated. Um, you know, it's still had this effect. This has been a terrible January <laughs> in the sense that you layer dry January on top of a COVID spike, which has both taken employees out and meant that breweries couldn't even be open because they didn't have enough employees to be open. And then you also have customers who don't want to go out or go anywhere because of all of that. I mean, it's really just this perfect, crazy, terrible storm and my heart goes out to everyone in the brewing industry that has to deal with that we've had to deal with it here even in our own office and i think you know at least 80 percent of our staff even though everyone is vaccinated and boosted 80 percent came down with covid and we've just had you know we've had to close the office here and there just because 
there was nobody here and nobody could be like, anyway, crazy times. We're all trying to navigate through all of this and deal with whatever the current situation is. Current situation is changing week to week, even, um, even within this context, if we pull back out from that, what, a what's the, you know, near-term and long-term goal for, for Door County and for, for Hacienda, um, what do you all hope to achieve, you know, and, and what does success mean for you all? What do you, where, when will you know that you all have found it? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the short-term goal is definitely just getting things back to normal. Uh, yeah, we've been hit. We've, we've been pretty lucky. Our, our brew, brew staff particularly has been only one person has gotten COVID, which is a shock. Um, but yeah, long-term, I think, for both companies, um, I hear this a lot in the podcast, but I agree with it uh, a lot is just getting all their, our employees kind of uh, to a place where they, they love coming into work every day. Um, they're really behind both brands and, and kind of the direction the company is heading. And yeah, just as, as a company as a whole, like all employees are, are at a place that they just just are really, really happy and really just enjoy working with one another um, and love, love the product they're, they're serving. Uh, it's the tap room. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's the long-term goal for sure. Well, fantastic. And that is brings us to a close for this episode 223. GD Chillers is the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. The Malt House by RAR is your online source for cool and exclusive RAR malting company gear. Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends mimic straight concentrates, but at a better price point. Get detailed insight into your fermentations with Brew Monitor risk free. Put SS Brewtax advances to work in your brew house and sign up today for Five Star Chemicals Homebrew Club program. As always, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you listen to it regularly or even only listen to it sporadically, we would love your support. Go to beerandbring.com, click on the subscribe button, and you can do things like pop back into our archive of content on the Craft Beer and Brewing app and read that 2016 uh, uh, breakout brewer on the early days of Door County. And of course, also access, uh, as only subscribers can, the uh, Beersmith and XML files for the recipe uh, from Door County for a New England style IPA. It's going to be funny to look back at those recipes now as they are vin- vintage. Like, what's the five year old? New yeah, England I'm going to go recipe. look that up because, man, it's probably, how does that compare yeah. to it now, right? <laughs> it was probably based on Punk Ass Cat, I would guess, which was kind of a pre, pre-Hacienda Hacienda beer. Um, but yeah. yeah. I, I bet it is. Well, I'll uh, I'll send you a link and we can talk about that offline after the podcast. Matt, if people want to learn more about Hacienda and Door County Brewing, where do they find you guys uh, out there on the internet and in real life? Yeah, so uh, online, uh, Instagram is definitely the best place to engage with us uh, at Hacienda Beer Co. and Door County Brewing Co. Um, those those same uh, handles are the are the websites, uh, and then we have a we have a tap room in Bailey's Harbor up here, um, right in Door County, and then uh, Hacienda Tap Room in Milwaukee, northeast northeast of Green Bay, right? Yep, yeah. Beautiful area in the summer. Uh, it's frigid in the winter, but it's beautiful in the winter too. Um, but yeah, the Hacienda North Avenue Tap Room in Milwaukee 
uh, in the east side. Uh, really beautiful space down there. Fantastic. Definitely check it out. Uh, Matt Sampson, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jamie. Really appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.